The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65. Today is the final Sunday of the Advent season, which means it's also our final Sunday of our Advent series, which we have called Working in the Waiting. And we've called it that because, one, Advent is a season of waiting. We spend this season looking back, right? We look back at how God promised uh, the, the coming, the Advent of a Savior. We look back at how the people waited for the Advent of the Messiah. God promised to send a Savior, and He did. And as we look back on that faithfulness, it causes faith to be stirred up in our hearts for us to look forward. Advent's not just a season in which we look back. It's also a season in which we look forward in faith. God has promised to send our Messiah again. A second advent. Christ will come again. And so what this season does is as we look back at the faithfulness of God, he promised to send Christ and he did. It stirs up faith in his future promises. He has promised to send Christ again and he will. This season reminds us of how the people of God waited faithfully for Christ's first advent. And therefore, this season calls us to wait faithfully for Christ's second advent. And for the past four weeks, if you've been wondering how our series is connected in with advent, this is it. For the past four weeks, we've been asking, how do we do that? How do we wait faithfully as the people of God? Specifically, we've been asking, how do we faithfully work in the waiting? Because what we've seen is that every single one of us has a calling, has a vocation. We've used that word rather than occupation because we're not just talking about a nine to five. All of us have a vocation, a calling. God has called each and every one of us as his people to something right here, right now, in the waiting. We are to be working, living out our vocation in the the waiting. And we've been asking, what does that look like? What's that supposed to look like? Like, how do I do what Grace was talking about? Go through my mundane every day that at the end, it feels like Groundhog's Day, right? Anyone's life ever feel like that? Like you're living the same day over and over and over. Like how do I go through my daily calling in my work? How do I do that for the glory of God? And to answer that question, we've been doing a miniature biblical theology of work. A biblical theology is just tracing a theme from the beginning to the end of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, going through the overarching storyline of Scripture to see what the whole story has to say about this particular thing. So we walk through creation, the fall, redemption, new creation to see what is it telling us, what does Scripture teach us about work, about vocation. So we began with creation, And looking at the purpose of our work in creation. We saw that the purpose of work in creation was created as a good thing. Okay, Work is not a part of the curse, not a part of the fall. It was created and given to us as a good gift. And its purpose was worship and witness. But it doesn't feel that way to us because we not only saw the purpose of work in creation, we went on to see the problem of work after the fall. We don't use it to worship God and for His glory. We sinfully take work and we turn it into worship of self. Like work becomes all about what I can accomplish for me, what name I can build for me, what accolades I can get for me. And therefore, work no longer fulfills its purpose as a witness either. It's not a witness to the world of the glory of God. If anything, it's a witness of my own glory that goes with me when I die. 
So work ends up becoming a waste. And for many of us, work can feel futile and pointless. We saw the purpose of work in creation, the problem of work after the fall. And then the past two weeks, Ed and Brad walked us through how the gospel can redeem and restore our work's purpose. Ed talked to us about how we can pursue work through redemption and our work can be made worship again. Brad talked to us about how we can pursue work through redemption and our work can be made witness again. So we have walked through the purpose of work in creation, the problem of work after the fall, the pursuit of our work through redemption, and that leaves one last thing for us to see this morning. And that's the promise of work in the new creation. The promise of work in the new creation. And we've got to see this, Shades. We have to see this because this is what is going to provide power for everything we have seen up to this point. Like what what is going to empower you to not make your vocation about yourself and your own glory, but to live it out for the glory of God. It's not just to try harder. Like, what's going to empower that? What's going to empower you not to waste your work, but through it to be a witness to the world? Day in and day out, what will provide the power for your working in the waiting? We can't do this in our own power. Like working in our own power is precisely what makes work all about our own glory. I'm doing it in my power. It shows off my glory. It shows off what I can accomplish. Working in our own power is precisely what robs our work of its purpose and makes it a waste. In order for our work to be worship and witness, pointing to the glory of God, it's got to be done in his power. It's got to be done in power that he provides so that he gets the glory, so that we can say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked hard, but it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is with me. How are we going to be empowered to work in the waiting? Shades, the good news of the gospel that I want us to see this morning is that God has provided his power for your working in the waiting. He has provided it to you, and he's provided it through a promise. The promise of work in the new creation. God's promise for the future provides power for your present. His promise of your future work provides power for your present work. That's what I want us to see this morning. And to see that, we need to see two things. The first one that we're going to spend the majority of our time on is we need to see what is God's promise of work in the new creation. Like that sounds weird to a lot of us. Never thought about that before. God has this promise that's supposed to empower our present. What is it? What is the promise of work in the new creation? And then second, we need to see the obvious thing. How does that promise empower our present? So that's where we are going this morning. Buckle up, everybody. Ready? I'm excited. Here we go. First, what has God promised concerning work in the new creation? This is why we're in Isaiah 65. It helps us answer this question. Because in Isaiah 65, we get this incredible prophetic picture of of God's promised new creation. So let's look at it together. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a big picture 
of new creation, and then we'll zoom in in this passage on what it has to say about the promise of work and the new creation. So read with me. Isaiah 65, just read the first verse, 17. The first verse of our passage, 17. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet, and he says, For behold, in other words, pay attention, got something important. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. That's Genesis 1-1 language, like down to the verb he uses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Behold, I create new heavens, a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Isaiah. It tends to not be a place that a lot of people camp out. It tends to be a place we like to cherry pick verses from. We don't like to camp out there because it's a big book and it's complicated. Prophecy is like no day at the park. It's a big book, it's complicated, but the essence of Isaiah's message is fairly simple to grasp. The prophet brings a message of judgment and salvation, of judgment and hope. Over and over and over again, we like to cherry pick from the hope passages. Not many people cherry pick and post to Instagram from the judgment passages. Try it sometime. See how many likes you get. Anyway, moving on. The overall message, judgment and and hope. And that message gets applied throughout the book in different situations and at different times, but this is its essence, judgment and hope. And throughout the book, Isaiah builds up to a picture of our ultimate hope as the people of God. New creation. This is the crescendo of it in Isaiah 65. It's all been culminated here. Isaiah is laying before us our ultimate hope, new creation. Shades, our ultimate hope as the people of God is not one day to be whisked away to a lofty spiritual realm in the sky where we all sit on clouds and play harps and have a sing-along eternally. Like that's, that's a Hollywood caricature of heaven. And it cannot compete with the biblical reality of new creation. It can't even come close The biblical picture of our ultimate hope is not that we'll be whisked away to this spiritual realm called heaven, but that God will recreate this earth, heaven on earth, as it was in the beginning in Eden. He will reshape, recreate, redeem all things. This is the storyline of the entire Bible. Like This is how the story starts, does it not, in Eden? In Genesis, God creates his world and he creates it the way he designs it to be and he dwells with his people, walks among them. And even after the fall, when we break that relationship, what's the constant storyline that he will redeem things to put them back the way they were with him dwelling among his people? He illustrates this in the tabernacle, God dwelling amongst his people. He illustrates it in the temple, God dwelling amongst his people. He does it quite literally in the incarnation, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, dwelling amongst his people. He does it now. The Holy Spirit indwells his people. God amongst us. What makes us think the end of the story would flip all of a sudden? God whisking us away to where he dwells. No. The Apostle John writes in the book of Revelation in chapter 21 that the dwelling place of God shall be with man, heaven and earth united. This is the end goal, a completely new creation. 
John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he picks up on this verbiage that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 65, and he uses it to describe the new creation like this in Revelation 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The heavens and earth, as you know it now underneath the curse, passed away. God creates a new heavens and a new earth. That's not, by the way, that's not replacement language. Okay, so when we say that God creates a new heavens and a new earth, the old has passed away, don't get in your mind that God like has a Acme TNT box and the universe, let's start this puppy over. This isn't replacement language, it's redemption language. It's the same language used to describe what God has done to you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. God didn't take a TNT box to you. Behold, the new has come. This is redemption, recreation language. All of creation made new just like you. The picture is that the old creation under the curse has passed away, and the final state of all things is a redeemed, renewed creation. It's a return to Eden. As believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians, we do not believe that matter in this world, in this body, is a bad thing that needs to be done away with so we can all escape to spiritual nirvana. We believe in redemption, in the reclamation. We believe in resurrection. We don't believe that just Jesus rose from the dead and he's the only one in flesh and bone for the rest of eternity. Read 1 Corinthians 15. We believe that we will all rise like he did and you need a resurrection body because there will be a resurrection world. New heavens, new earth, return to Eden. The end goal is not an escape from this world. The end goal is for us to enjoy this world the way that God created it to be. This is our ultimate hope. This is what's being described in Isaiah chapter 65. What does this hope look like? Like this hope of a, of a new creation. What, what does that Look like Isaiah is glad we asked, because that's what he's going to go on to unfold. And he begins unfolding it in verses 18 and 19. And he says that this new world, this new creation, it is a place of eternal joy. Like the world was created to be. A place of eternal joy in God. Look at verses 18 and 19. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. A new Jerusalem, God says he will create. That's another image that God often uses in Scripture for his new creation. Okay, don't trip up over that. Sometimes he talks about a new Jerusalem. Sometimes he talks about a new creation. The idea is that Jerusalem is where God dwelt with his people. This is all referring to a new creation where God will dwell with his people. Behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. What does the promise of new creation look like? It looks like a place of eternal joy where God's people find joy in him and he rejoices in them. Isaiah says, all, all weeping, all distress, gone. 
How's that possible? I don't know about you, but I can't picture this planet as a place of eternal joy. We get glimpses. We get glimpses. Sunset brings me joy. Mountains, valleys, rivers, experiences, relationships, but all of it is somehow also tainted. Even nature itself tainted. Did we not see, if you haven't heard the news, a tsunami hit Indonesia last night. 200 people, gone. It's all tainted and twisted. How is it possible that all weeping and distress will be gone? Isaiah, again, is glad that we asked. In verses 20 to 25, he's going to show us three things. Three things that will add up to show us what makes eternal joy in the new creation possible. See these three things with me. Number one, he shows us death is no more. Death is no more. Look at verse 20. No more shall there be in it, that's in the new Jerusalem, the new creation. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, this is prophetic, poetic language. Anytime you see the, the, the scriptures in your Bible set off in this style, you're dealing with Hebrew prophecy. I mean, Hebrew poetry is what you're dealing with. Sometimes it's prophecy. So this is poetic, prophetic language. In other words, you can't press it too hard and make it be overly literalistic. Poetic language, prophetic language, is, is used to paint pictures of the truth. We know this from our own experience with poetry, right? Like if I write a poem that says, my wife is a beautiful flower, nobody anticipates that I'm married to a tulip. Like we understand immediately, everyone knows I'm using language to paint a picture of a truth. I'm conveying a reality, namely that I think my wife is beautiful. So what's the picture that Isaiah is poetically painting right here? It's a picture of the end of death. We feel the sting of death most now when it hits those who are young, do we not? When an infant is, is taken, when a young person does not fill out their days, and Isaiah says all of that, no more. He even goes on to give us a hypothetical. He says, in fact, like if somebody in the new creation died at the age of 100, they would be considered young. He's not telling us what, what death is not going to be in the new creation. He's making a hypothetical statement in order to make his point. If somebody died at 100, they'd be considered young. They would be looked at as if they were an accursed sinner. Like death, no more. That's, that's his point. Why will the new creation be a place of eternal joy? Isaiah says, one, because death is no more. Second, Isaiah shows us that the frustration of work is no more. We're going to come back to this, obviously. But the frustration of work is no more. Look at verses 21 and 22. They, that's God's people, shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. Why? For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. In other words, because death is no more, and you got a lifespan like a tree, you're going to live a long time, like, no more are you going to spend your life working only to die and leave it all to somebody else to enjoy. 
that you will experience the fruit of your plant a vineyard and eat its harvest. You will experience the and enjoy the, the, the fruits of your labor. For work will no longer be frustratingly futile. We're going to come back to this in detail in a moment, but Isaiah has shown us that in the new creation, it's going to be a place of eternal joy because death will be no more and the frustration of work will be no more. Third thing he shows us, the pain of childbirth will be no more. Look at verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Again, this is prophetic, poetic language being used to, to highlight a, a point we know from the rest of Scripture that we won't be having babies in the new creation. That's another sermon for another time. All right? But so what's Isaiah's point in saying that the pain of childbirth will be no more? Isaiah's point is the curse has been reversed. Is that not what these three things add up to? No more death, no more frustration in work, no more pain in childbirth. Does that not add up to no more curse? It's like Isaiah is, is rolling back the curse of Genesis 3. In fact, I submit to you he's doing exactly that. Like if you read Genesis 3, the curse of sin is dealt out in this order. Pain in childbirth, frustration in work, death itself. And Isaiah rolls those back in reverse order. Death, no more. Frustration, no more. Pain, no more. The curse has been reversed and removed. How? How? I believe he shows us in verse 24 that it's because the very thing that brought the curse about has been healed. The curse was brought about by the breaking of our relationship with God through sin. We looked at God and said, not you, we want to be God. We want to be the determiners of what's good and wrong, right and wrong for ourselves. We want to be on the throne. That's what sin is, putting ourselves in the place of God. And we broke our relationship with him. Isaiah says the curse has been reversed because that relationship has been redeemed and restored. Look at verse 24. God says this of his relationship with his people. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. I mean, is this not God saying, I and my people will be in perfect relationship with one another? I'll know what they need even before they ask, and their asking will now perfectly align with my answers. Our relationship with God completely redeemed. Isaiah has spent many of his prophecies showing us how this will be possible. You rewind back to Isaiah 53. He said that God is going to send a servant who will suffer on our behalf. He will take the curse of sin and death. He will be crushed for our iniquities, bruised for our sins. It will be placed upon him and he will be put to death. But Isaiah goes on to talk about how he will live again. There will be a suffering servant who will take the curse of sin and death upon himself so that our relationship with God will be restored. You rewind, you go back to Isaiah chapter 11. He tells us this suffering servant, he's going to be a king from the line of David. This line of kings that in Isaiah's day looked like it was a tree being chopped down. He says there's going to be a new shoot off that stump. 
a righteous branch from the root of Jesse. It's going to be a king come in David's line. You rewind just a little bit more to Isaiah chapter 9. He says that king is not going to come like all others. He's going to be born as a baby. Behold, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Not the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Isaiah says there's going to be a child born of a virgin. Lowly, but yet a king from David's line. A servant of God who will suffer. So that your relationship with God may be perfectly restored. This is what Isaiah envisions in verse 24. Our relationship with God completely redeemed and all of creation along with it. Creation's fate, its destiny is bound up with ours. We sinned and creation was cursed along with us. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that creation now is groaning with birth pains, longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption. And when will it be set free? At the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. When we are redeemed, creation gets to come along. It followed us into the fall. It gets to follow us out of it. That's what Isaiah points to. In verse 25, our relationship with God is restored And all of creation is restored and redeemed as well. Look at verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt, animals shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. It's a picture of all creation at peace, none of it causing pain anymore to each other or to us. No no more tsunamis like Indonesia experienced last night. No no more tornadoes like we experience. No more respecting the polygon. That's a very specific Alabama joke, which fell flat. Move on. (laughs) No more pain caused by creation. Even the serpent... Satan himself can no longer cause any pain within God's newly created order. Did you catch that? Like he's permanently removed. He's permanently accursed and and removed. Do you see that in verse 25? Like in all this talk about the redemption of all of creation, we're told one specific thing about the serpent, that dust will still be his food. That's a direct reference to Genesis 3.14, where the serpent is cursed to slither about on his belly and dust shall be his food. In other words, this is a reminder from God that while I have redeemed all of creation, that serpent who is Satan is cursed forever. And in my holy mountain, nothing that's cursed forever gets to be there causing pain anymore. He's removed as well. God's new creation, the entire curse Reverse. Revelation 22 and verse 3 says that explicitly. No longer will there be anything accursed. No more curse in the new creation. We sang that earlier, did we not? I mean, there's a reason that song's title is Joy to the World. 
No more let sin and sorrow grow, no th- nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, that's about Jesus' second coming, by the way, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Every nook and cranny of the heavens and earth, the entire created order that's been infected and affected by the curse, far as it's found, that's how far the redemption of Jesus Christ goes. No more curse. It's like a return to Eden. The end of our story mirrors the beginning. God will dwell among his people just like he did in Eden, but this time it will be forever. This is the end of our story, and it is a far cry from a boring eternal sing-along in the sky. Like This is life redeemed. Life returned to the way it was created. This is the promise of new creation. The big promise. The overarching promise. I told you I wanted us to see that. And then let's zoom back in really quick on verses 21 and 22. Because it's there that we briefly saw the picture of God's promise concerning work in the new creation. So let's zoom in on that and expand it for just a minute. What is his promise specifically about work in the new creation? God says this, verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. In other words, we were made to be creators and cultivators, workers. That wasn't part of the fall. It was part of God's good blessing of creation, and it will still be a part of his good blessing in the new creation. We will still be creators. They will build houses. We'll still be cultivators. They will plant vineyards. Does that all mean that we go into like construction and and farming? I got no clue, people. It's prophetic language. Don't push it too hard. But it does mean we will still be creators and cultivators. And not only will we still work, but we will do so without the effects of the curse. All pain and frustration from our work, gone. At, At my house... We love Legos, except when I step on them in the dark. Then they are the most painful object created on this planet. Other than that, we love Legos. All my kids play with Legos. So do I. Um, but when, especially when Levi and Talitha, when they are building with Legos, it's not uncommon to hear Levi or Talitha call out Asher, my two-year-old. They'll call out his name. Talitha, if she calls out Asher's name, is typically in pain. Asher! And she runs to me and tells me he's been pelting her with Legos again as if they were projectile weapons. It's a painful experience for her. Levi, on the other hand, if he calls out Asher's name, it's usually in frustration. Asher! And he'll come to me and tell me how Asher has pretended to be Godzilla, completely destroyed one of his creations, and Levi doesn't even want to put it back together again because he's just going to destroy it again. It's frustrating for Levi. It seems futile. But then there comes this magical portion of the day known as nap time. And Asher is banished from the playroom to his bed, and all things accursed go with him. And now Talitha and Levi are free to create and cultivate, completely free of pain and frustration. It is nap time, new creation. 
while this is silly, this is exactly what God promises. Not just that we will create and cultivate in the new creation, but that we will do so without pain and frustration. Is that not exactly what verse 22 is about? Look at verse 22. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Because death and the curse have been removed, our work won't be futile where we work so hard only to die and leave it behind for somebody else to enjoy or not even knowing what will become of it. No, we will enjoy it. The Hebrew word right there that's translated enjoy, it literally means to wear something out. Like to get the full use out of it. So we could say, my chosen shall wear out, used to the full. They will maximally enjoy the work of their hands. And why? Why will we maximally enjoy it? Not just because death won't take it from us, but we will actually enjoy it because we will be rightly related to our work, not painfully trying to use it for our own glory, something it can never accomplish, never fulfill, which is why that's painful. No, we will be rightly related to it, enjoying God's glory through it. I know that because that's how this whole passage is bookended. That's how it begins, and that's how it ends. In verse 18, it begins with this. In verse 24, it ends with this. In both those places, describing how we are in a perfect, joy-filled relationship with the Lord. Behold, I create Jerusalem to be. I give my new creation for my people's gladness and joy. And then in verse 24, before they speak, I'm going to hear them. I'm going to answer, I'm going to be perfect relationship. It's only in between that, in the context of that, that our work can be maximally enjoyed. It's only within the rela- that relationship that our work can be rightly enjoyed. This is the promise of work in the new creation. No longer painful and no longer futile because we try to make it about our own glory. No, it will be perfectly fruitful. For it displays the glory of God for us to enjoy forever. Our work will be perfect worship and perfect witness of the glory of God. That's the promise. It's the first thing we need to see. That was an introduction. I'm just kidding. That's the promise of work in the new creation. And that promise about our future is meant to provide power for your present. The promise of your future work is meant to empower your present work. You're working in the waiting. This is the second thing that we need to see this morning. Power is provided for your present through this future promise. Power is provided for your present through this future promise. That's how God intends for this whole prophetic passage to work in your life. Like that's the reason... He gives us this prophetic picture to empower you in the present. It's not just so we can look at it and be like, well, that'll be nice one day, but right now everything sucks. No, this picture is given to us to provide power in the present. You can see that in verse 18. Look at it again with me. But be glad and rejoice forever. That's present tense. 
Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I, this is future tense now, that in which I will create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Be glad and rejoice, my people, right now. Right now, like, I'm giving you, my people, a picture of the hope that I have for you to empower you to rejoice right now. This prophecy is being spoken to people in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And do you see how God intends it to empower joy? He's saying to these people in the midst of difficulty, the difficulties you're in, they don't win. Keep going. Keep running. I will fulfill my promise to redeem everything, to make all things new. And that promise is meant to empower the people of God. They can choose not to believe it. I don't believe you when you say that my difficult circumstances won't overtake me. I don't believe this promise that you've held out there. And no power will be provided through the promise. Unbelief. We call it quenching the Spirit. They can do that, or they can fight the fight of faith. They can fight to believe the promise of God. That no matter what everything around them looks like, God's word and his promises are true. That even when he's delayed hundreds of years sending a promise, making sure that a promise comes to fruition, you still place, I still believe, I still trust, I'll still follow. They can choose to put their faith in, fight the fight of faith, believe his promises are true, and through their faith, his promise provides power. You see how this works? This is how I empower my children. Through promises. I say something to them like, let me throw you in the air and I will catch you. I promise. Okay, it's going to be fun. Let me throw you. It'll be joyous and I'll catch you. I, I, I prom- they can choose to not believe me and no power will be provided. Or they can fight for faith in my word, in my promise, trust me, and through their faith in my promise, power is provided. I throw them. I catch them. It's my power, and they receive it by faith. This is how the promises of God work to empower us amidst all the difficulties of living in a world still under the curse. We still live in a world that faces the effects of the curse. We still face the difficulties and the effects of death. And when I stand and I face death, shades, I mourn. But 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I do not mourn as those who have no hope, for I have a promise. I have a promise that my Savior who has risen from the dead will one day raise all who follow him to everlasting life in the new creation. And by faith in that promise, he provides me with power right now to stare death in the face and to, yes, be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. You see how that works? Not just with death, but with the difficulties of the curse, like pain and suffering. When, when we face pain and suffering, shades, I hurt. When I face pain, when I face suffering, I, I hurt. 
But 2 Corinthians 4.16, I do not lose heart because even though this outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's a promise. And by faith in that promise, God provides power for me to not lose heart, but to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Facing death, facing pain, and yes, facing the frustration of work even today. Facing difficulties in our vocations. When our vocations seem futile, we have a promise. The promise of a coming kingdom in which our work will not be futile, but it will be perfectly fruitful. More than that, we have a promise that that kingdom is breaking into the present right now through the resurrection of Jesus. Through the cross and the empty tomb, the reversal of the curse has already started. Galatians 3.13 tells me that when Jesus got upon the cross, he bore the curse. He bore the curse and he reversed it when he walked out of the tomb. Quite literally reversed the curse. of. He took upon himself the curse of sin and death, defeated it, reversed it, rose from the dead. And his resurrection is just the beginning because we have a promise, much like his first advent, we have a promise for a second advent in which he will return to complete what his resurrection began. But because of his resurrection... The coming reversal of all things, it's already breaking in. It's breaking into this present cursed world. That's what his resurrection was. An inbreaking of the resurrection life to come. A preview, as it were. It's like being engaged. You're not quite married yet, but you're not dating anymore. The hope of what's to come is breaking into your present reality. That's what the resurrection of Christ is. A breaking in of the world to come into the present. You see this all throughout Jesus' life and incarnation. Everywhere that Jesus walked, it was like little reversals of the curse would break out. Like he'd go somewhere and the blind would see and the deaf would hear. Creation itself would listen to him and storms and chaos would, would cease. Everywhere Jesus went, little reverses of the curse began to break out. And Christian, by the Holy Spirit of God, the resurrected Christ has walked into your life. You should expect little reversals of the curse to break out. He's walked into your life. His resurrection life, his kingdom reversal is breaking in to the present age through you. And it breaks in through your work, your vocation too. Do you believe this promise? It will empower you. It will empower you to do your work as worship unto the Lord. And such work becomes a witness to the world of the world that's coming. When you do your work as worship, it's a witness to the world of the world that's, that's coming. One of the most beautiful pictures of the, I'll close with this. One of the most beautiful pictures of this reality is a short story by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's called uh, leaf by niggle. And the word, the word niggle, it means uh, to spend too much time and effort on inconsequential details, to be obsessed with the, 
minutia of something. And Tolkien, he chose that word as the, the name of the main character in this story because this is the kind of person his character was. In the story, Niggle is an artist, and he's described as the kind of artist that's better at painting leaves than trees. He's obsessed with the small, minute detail, got to get it just right. And, and Niggle has this vision of his life's work. He, he has this vision in his head of a tree. This beautiful tree with rolling landscapes around it, and, and his goal is to paint what he sees in his head, to get it out into the world. And he constructs this massive canvas upon which to paint this, and he begins to, to pour himself into this work. But it's hard for him to make any progress because he obsesses over every single little detail. And the real problem in the story is that Niggle has a trip coming up that he cannot avoid. And so he's got to finish his work before the trip gets there. And as you read the story, you begin to realize that that trip, it's a symbol for death. He wants to finish his work before he, he dies. But sure enough, as the story goes, death comes. And Niggle is not finished with his painting. Worse than that, once he's gone, most of the massive canvas that he had assembled is, is taken apart by people who didn't really understand his artwork. It's used for other purposes. Much of it is destroyed. And in the end, his life's work is reduced down to all that remains is a single leaf. And that leaf, it does get framed. And it gets put in, a, in, the, in the town museum, but it's kind of like off in a corner where nobody ever really season. It's just got a simple label underneath it that says Leaf by Niggle. But the story doesn't end there. We as the readers are taken with Niggle on his journey into a far country. That's, that's Tolkien's image of heaven, of the new creation. And as Niggle is brought into that fair country, he spots something and he can scarcely believe his eyes. It's his tree. Not a tree. It's, it's his tree. The one he worked so hard to paint. There it is. In reality, there really is a tree. Shades, you may spend your whole life working and wishing to paint the greatest tree that the world has ever seen, and all you may finish is a leaf. Or all that may remain once you are gone is a single leaf, but your work was not wasted because it's pointing to the reality that there really is a tree. Christian lawyer or cop or judge, you spend your life working for justice, not because you will achieve justice in this world, but to testify to the reality that a perfectly just world is coming. This world needs people who will testify to the reality that a perfectly just world is coming. There really is a tree. And when your work is done as worship, you bear witness to that coming reality. Stay-at-home parent 
You daily lay down your life for others. Why? Not because you're a perfect parent, but to testify to the reality that there is a perfect parent. There is a perfect one who really has laid down his life so that we might have life. There really is a tree. And when your work is done as worship, you bear witness to that coming reality. Carpenter, you work for quality creations. Artist, you work for beauty. Custodians, you work for care and service. Medical and mental health professionals, you work for health and wholeness. Business owners and employers and employees, you work to provide goods and services to the public. And you work to provide for your family. And not one of us will perfectly accomplish what we work for. But when it's done as worship, we bear witness to the coming reality, a new creation of perfect quality, transcendent beauty, a place for perfect care, health, wholeness, where we are perfectly loved and provided and provided for. Every single vocation, I can't list them all, every single vocation when done righteously and in righteousness points to the truth that there is a kingdom coming in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, his promise, we hold on to his promise, we believe his promise, we're going to be empowered by faith in his promise. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens, we're waiting, we're in this working in the waiting period, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Shades, there really is a tree. And that promise empowers every last one of us to paint our individual leaves. It empowers us to work in the waiting.